Before today's episode, we acknowledge the Yagara people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Mianjin, Brisbane, the lands on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast contains descriptions of domestic and family violence that listeners may find confronting, challenging or triggering. Audience discretion is advised. Domestic violence is a national crisis. Targeting the most likely domestic violence murderers. Domestic violence protocols and culture will be put under the microscope. Queensland's silent killer. On average, one woman a week and one man a month is killed by a current or former partner. Here's a sobering statistic. There are more than 100,000 cases of domestic violence in Queensland every year. Welcome to Behind the Doors of Domestic Violence, presented by the Queensland Police Service. My name's Dean Cooper and I'll be the host of this podcast series. I'm a facilitator of a men's behavioural change program working to change the belief systems of men who perpetrate violence. I also work with Griffith University's Make Bystander program to empower a community of bystanders to be someone who does something about domestic and family violence in our community. Today we'll be speaking with two police officers that we have here regarding police responses to domestic and family violence. We rarely get the opportunity to sit representatives down and ask the questions that we all have on our minds and any myths that we'd like to bust or answers to questions that we've been holding for quite a long time. So I'm really happy to have Sergeant Sharon Morgan here, who's the Domestic Violence Coordinator in Police Communications based in Brisbane, and Sergeant Chris Cronin, uh, who is the officer in charge of Mount Morgan, which is a tiny town west of uh, Rockhampton. Welcome to you both today. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Maybe just a little bit of an introduction for yourself, Chris, just a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Mount Morgan, where you are. So I'm Sergeant Chris Croner. I'm the officer in charge of the Mount Morgan Police. Um, I've been in the police service now for just over a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've worked in uh, City, Valley, North Brisbane, some experience as a detective investigator. And I took that with me out to northwest Queensland, where we're in Mount Isa, and we did a lot of work with rural, remote, indigenous populations and communities out there. And luckily for me, an opportunity came up at Mount Morgan that I really I couldn't turn down. So it's been a very exciting opportunity, and I'm looking forward to the future for it too. So, yeah, well, welcome to the big smoke. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, not often I get down to the city. So. <laughs> yeah. And what about yourself, Sharon? A little bit about your background and how you ended up as a domestic violence coordinator in police communications. Yeah. Okay. So I've been a police officer for 24 years. Worked all over the state. Obviously, uh, Cairns, Harvey Bay. Childers. I was the officer in charge of Jin Jin before I came here. I came into the DV coordination unit and um, sort of got a tap on the shoulder to say, hey, there's vacancies coming up. I threw in for it and I got the job. So, oh, Welcome today. Thank you. Chris, in a little town like Mount Morgan, west of Rockhampton, just how prevalent is domestic and family violence in some of those rural communities that you oversee and that you work within? Yeah, look, domestic violence is our number one space of work. Like we called pretty well every day to something that um, needs some attention or some people that need assistance, counselling services or getting them hooked up with other support agencies. But if we have to, obviously, of course, always taking that perpetrator out of that situation to help them but domestic violence is something that's not just from the city it it transcends all races genders socioeconomic statuses you know I've spoken to people who are high up in business about domestic violence and I've spoken to you know teenagers at high schools about so really there's it doesn't escape anyone it's not something that you can just say oh this person is definitely it like um, and I also find sometimes that domestic violence can be maybe periodic or episodal. So perhaps maybe that particular family at the time, uh, they might be struggling with finances and that might bring it out more than maybe in, a, in six months prior when they didn't have those struggles. Like So it's all about, I guess, how people 
can argue together and argue in a healthy way and maybe educating them and taking that extra time to to spend with them about that because people sometimes don't realise what is domestic violence and a, a lot of our response is usually educational. You know, we're saying like, hey, this is something that you don't have to put up with or this is something that you need to monitor for yourself, like just to identify for their own safety. Like mm. when I'm talking to them, some of them are bewildered at what actually I classify mm. as domestic violence. Mm-hmm. For us in Mount Morgan, it's not about splitting up the family unit. Mm. It's about supporting them where we can. Mm. And we do that by holding perpetrators to account, giving them assistance as well, Mm. but also making sure that everyone else in the family is built up enough to survive Mm. what is coming or what could come. Because we always know that, well, the readings that I've done and, and the education I've done for myself is that Domestic violence is scale, it gets worse and worse and worse. Like mm. it just doesn't start out, you know, it's your first rodeo, you just yeah. don't go and punch a hole in the wall and smash the telly. Mm. You know, it starts out little and just builds up and sometimes we get to those lethality events that we unfortunately see way too much. Behind the beauty of regional Australia, domestic violence support services are reporting an ugly story. When you are responding and you are explaining what domestic and family violence is to someone, how would you, I guess, explain to them through the eyes of the law in which you have to police and enforce, what does the law say about domestic and family violence? Um, You know, there's a big stigma out there that to be in a domestic violence relationship that you've had to have been hit or your children have been hit or, you know, there's some sort of level of violence. But realistically, like when they define domestic violence in the legislation, that's only one section. In fact, it's the smallest section the rest of it goes through sections 10 11 12 13 you know goes through financial control threatening behavior coercive control i say to people if you feel like you're dominated and you're kept in a shoebox and you're not allowed out because you're going to get in trouble then that is form of domestic violence Mm. and of course a big hurdle but i haven't been hit chris you know or you don't need to be hit because you're partner is significantly larger than you mm-hmm. much stronger mm-hmm. and perhaps maybe they don't need to hit you they can just threaten with a law and like section 8 of the DV act and all that sort of stuff like that's you know physical violence is very small of course it's a big indicator but it's the smaller section there's actually much more pages about financial control threatening behavior coercive control property damage hurting pets accessing phones um, we're seeing more and more now social media is playing a big part you know like you're not allowed to have social media unless i have your passwords and then using that even to extort them that's very hard to talk about and even then the hardest question i have to people is tell me what happened and then we move into you know like is it criminal or is it civil so there's two parts of it there civil is obviously getting in and taking out those protective orders stops people from getting a gun license pretty much which Mm. i think is a nice piece of legislation especially working in the bush like Mm. we have a lot of farmers and stuff who you know may not have realized that their behavior was domestic violence now i take these orders out on them and it's a stopping point for that family to maybe reflect on how they're going to move forward and that's Mm. the that's the civil pathway Mm. often a victim survivor may not want to press a criminal charge and that's totally within their right too, you know, like Mm. they're in control. Obviously criminal charges for assault or property damage or stalking, like strangulation, these offences are, this is getting to the more riskier type of domestic violence where there's actually people going to hospital and actually, you know, houses being destroyed. So there's two different things there and they both have different response tactics. I think it's important at all levels just to keep the opinion and the the needs of that victim survivor to how how do they want to pursue it and I always would explain these options to someone when I'm investigating domestic yeah. violence so we have pretty good legislation like we're pretty forward I think 
but it doesn't have to be a blow up. Sometimes people just might be driving to work one day and just, you know what, I'm going to go talk to the police. And they yeah. just, there hasn't been a huge big incident. That doesn't not validate how serious their yeah. DB is. For someone who is living in a relationship who's thinking, you know, I'm not the person to call police, I'm only dealing with financial control or emotional abuse, what would your message be? If someone didn't feel like they could call the police, I'd also say that's okay. Like I'm not, not that I want to detract people from calling the police, but I also don't want to be the next bloke in their life that's going to mm -hmm. tell them what they should and shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. So I definitely give them the freedom to decide how they'd like to go. But I think it's important to know that if you didn't want to call the police, there's online options where you can discreetly text. And the website that we've designed, if you just Google DVQPS, it comes up and it has an exit quick yeah, button. I think it right. exits out to news.com or Google or something. So it's a safety feature built into that part of the, the website mm -hmm. that I did see. And um, those online reporting is just as important like it might be more discreet. You're not going to have the police come to your house or something like that, you know, and the police will always do their best with any information they have. And someone who's traumatised is not going to give you the best information. Mm. Like if you've just had your head kicked in, you're not going to be able to talk mm. succinctly and like a like you would at coffee. You're not mm. going to be able to retell a nice story. Like it's going to be a bit sporadic and jagged. And, and what we've done with our training in terms of trauma response now, that all the police in the state of you know, had training now in terms of how to talk to someone with trauma and identify those indicators. If you can't call the police, if you don't feel online's good for you, if you attend to a police station, you can report it there. But it's important that you know that you're still in charge and you can talk to someone in private. You know, you don't go to the doctors and talk about something in the surgery foyer. Like mm -hmm. the other thing I want to make a really good point of is that if they've made themselves aware of domestic violence, that's really positive too, because it takes a lot to admit that you've been a victim that's a huge step yeah. because the police also doesn't have to be the only exit there's so many other organizations like dv connect dv men's line white ribbon association and there's lots of very good successful stories where they've escaped their relationship we're doing a three-day holistic training it's a compulsory training that we're rolling out across the state that has to be done by june this year so we're nearly there yeah. even someone like myself who has lived experience as a victim survivor and who has been a police officer 24 years mm. i took away some really valuable lessons from that three-day course so it's making us better you know, the thing that I say to people in my tagline, I would have said this to hundreds of people, is that give me a chance. An awkward conversation is better than no conversation at all. Mm. I think it's important to know that police are very aware of perpetrator tactics. A perpetrator is going to tell the victim survivor all sorts of crazy stories to make them think the police are not going to believe them. Mm. And that's our constant battle. We will never give that up. I know that where I was working previously before I come into the command, you know, I was in a small rural town myself. If if I had someone contact me or they didn't feel like coming to the police station because, you know, small rural town, everyone knows everyone's business, we would meet them or we would go into the nearest bigger town like mm. Bundaberg or, or we'd hook them up to services with Bundaberg VPU or a VPU service elsewhere. Mm. And we've got DV Connect who are brilliant and, and all these DV external stakeholders who are fantastic for victim survivors in that if they don't want to talk to us... Mm they can disclose to them, they can help them with emergency accommodation, financial packages, safety plans, all the stuff that is so important and imperative to getting that victim survivor the confidence yeah. to come and speak to police. It's really um, refreshing to hear that police aren't working in isolation. There's an ecosystem of points Absolutely. in which perpetrators are held accountable and people can receive support. So it's good to know that there's a whole ecosystem out there to address the issue. For a survivor in a relationship that 
you know, reporting something to the police or triggering a system's response is really an unknown field and they're scared of the unknown. Could you describe a little bit about what a survivor's journey would look like should they contact the police? What would it look like if they were to walk through the doors of that police station? What would they be met with? We would meet them where they're at and work out how they want to talk about it. Sometimes they might want to just drive in the car, go out, you know, to a different town or in the station. So to work out that strategies that they might be able to employ or, you know, how do you think you could go about it? Effectively, it's designed at getting the person out of that trauma, getting them to be able to think logically and conductively to where they're going to go. And sometimes for us in Mount Morgan, that means that I'm going to organise alternative accommodation, mm-hmm. um, maybe a different rental agreement with housing, get you moved to a different town, or if that's what has to happen, or the perpetrator is going to go to jail after that. Mm-hmm. Like I'm probably going to leave there once you're that person's safe, find the perpetrator and then hold them to account. The man has been charged in relation to that offence with two counts of stalking and intimidation intended to cause fear and physical harm. So some of the strategies we use to help people feel at ease in the police station is, you know, I've teamed up with the Country Women's Association and they make some quilts and blankets for us And because a police station can be pretty sterile so a nice blanket knitted with kindness is something that keeps warm so, you know, I'll organise that for you and we've got packs for kids like colouring in packs if they need to sit down and colour in for a little while or, you know, be distracted because obviously, you know, having children, it's difficult to talk about these things where the kids are listening and that we all know they've got big ears. So mm. it is important that the victim survivor knows, the person seeking help knows that at that station at that time, they're the most important person there. Mm. If they would like a drink of water, of course, it's a cup of tea or anything, you know, with a diverse organisation. So if you would like to speak to someone of your cultural heritage or background or gender or something like that, then that can be arranged. A victim survivor coming to a station is usually the last resort. There's probably been an incident or years of incidents where they've finally got that courage to go to the police station. So, you know, we need to embrace that and make them feel welcome and make them feel safe enough to speak to us and disclose all those things that have happened so that we can assist them to be safe and to take action. Making them feel welcome, taking to a private space, if a female victim survivor comes to the station, hooking them up with a female officer. It could take us 10 minutes, it could take us three hours. I've done incidents where I've had a victim survivor come in, I've taken her into my office because it's feminine, it's lovely, it's nice and welcoming, it's got photos everywhere and we've done an affidavit and it was, you know, 15 pages long. And when she first came to the counter it was he's following me around and he's, he's ringing me up every day. But when we got her into the station, into my office, it was there's sexual abuse, he's taken my key card, mm-hmm. I can't have friends, you know, physical abuse, all those big red flags. Mm-hmm. So, you know. I think you can underestimate how difficult it is to talk about some of these traumatic experiences mm-hmm. that the person may have experienced. Someone might take half an hour, but someone may take longer, as long as necessary is required to get that information out in a safe, non-triggering way. better support police in how you respond to these incidents? You know, we definitely go to domestic homicides where the police have had contact with them. But more often than not, we go to domestic homicides where they haven't had contact with the police. And um, in my detective days, I don't know how many people I've interviewed where they said, oh, I knew something was happening. Like, you didn't give me a chance. Like, just at least have that conversation. You can ring up Crime Stoppers if you have to. Just if you want to stay anonymous, you can. Like, as long as 
something gets brought to light those people if you're there your neighbors or your friends and family you know because domestic violence can affect your employment it can affect so many kids schooling there's so many other factors than just the one they might not realize either so perhaps i would call to people to ring up and report for your neighbors you know like it it might just sound like another noise complaint to you but you might not realize that that particular is an indicator for that family because not everyone is the same there's not every dv's clear cut like they're all different everyone has a different the level of tolerance, different mm. triggers, different, you know, cultural like, backgrounds, 100%. cultural beliefs. Yeah, you know, sounds racial. like a, a bystander's, um, you know, reporting or of something like a change or a noise complaint or something could be a bigger piece, of, you know, in the puzzle of that ecosystem that the police operate within within the system. Massively, we need that cooperation. Like, it is very hard when I'm hearing we knew this was happening, mm. and I'm like, oh, if you had just spoken to me a month ago, you know, maybe we wouldn't be where we're at. You know, I think there is other government departments that do play roles and you know engagement with our schools and junior students you know zero to four years old that trauma that they're victims as well those kids that see that you know and we definitely have open pathways when we talk to principals about the student behaviors and sometimes we see those behaviors come from home and they go into the classroom in the schoolyard and they're pretty big indicators for for me to maybe go and gently ask the question the police are not going to just come into your house and kick the door in and go we think there's domestic violence happening here like yeah. we're going to be covert about it we're going to be sensitive about it i can't go and drop that bomb if i know that victim's not safe yeah. but off the evidence of the neighbors and principals people in the street like i've been able to separate get those kids back into school we want the community to ring us if they identify that something's not not right and easily three quarters of our jobs that are coming in uh, highlighting domestic violence incidents are occurring mm. are from a neighbour or from you know someone up the back or mm. a person has just driven past a house and seen seen something and reported it so that's fantastic or a road rage incident and you know the research tells us that in Australia one woman a week is murdered by an intimate partner mm. you know last year for example up to the 28th of February 2023 there were 21,698 domestic family violence applications through our courts. So that's 21,698 applications asking for protection. Mm. So the numbers are massive and we're never going to stop it, Mm. but we're here to combat it and we're here to reduce it. The brave cops tracking down offenders, knocking on doors. It's keeping families safe. What's the, I guess, the threshold like for someone who might be calling police and really dipping their toe in the pool of reporting information and they're not quite sure to give the full story, the names? Is that a common thing that happens? Yeah, all the time. And and I think um, we underplay how difficult it is to ring the police, you know, especially if you're not engaged with the police often, you know, like it's, it's hard to call the police and it's a big, brave step. And so anyone who wanted to call or get engaged, I would... I'll take anything. I don't I don't care how little the information is. Like if they're going to give me a small piece that says, hey, maybe there's some things over here that, you know, I've got access to perpetrator mapping, you know, uh, dashboards, harm dashboards, national crime database. I may know more stuff than what, you know, but if they're not identifying, they don't want to identify them, that's also okay. Because I think, again, it's nice to have, go to that person, that concerned friend or family member, have that conversation with them about, what is it that you're concerned with? Maybe it wasn't domestic violence or maybe it is domestic violence. And then, you know, explain to them, educate them on how we could go about it and then give that person all the non-government, you know, all the information to assist their friend, you know, and that's probably more powerful than the police coming in. Um, It's a lot harder. Like both pathways are hard, but we regularly see people escaping domestic violence without involvement of the police. And I've definitely had even conversations with 
victim survivors after their friends have told me. And I've, I've sat there for three days, mm. typed out a big statement. I just want them to sign it because I know I can put on mate behind bars for, mm. you know, 10 years and they just won't sign it. Mm. That's okay too. The focus is building a healthier relationships, building people up for me at our town, like, you know, getting them to a space where they're able to make healthy, happy decisions argue safely because mm. i think there's a way to argue and there's a way to argue you know and then have those boundaries for each other mm. it happens regularly though yeah it's not always the police one side we're not mm. you know there's so many other places there's um i think i named a few before there's dv connect dv men's line white ribbon foundation's great um mm. hospitals we've got there's a suite of packages there's absolutely if you give me a phone number i can have like 10 people ring you in three days about all the stuff they offer there's emergency payments. Yeah. Um, you know, I've definitely put people in contact with Centrelink for like emergency payments if they they might not be able to escape because they don't have the funds. Like you know, and that's maybe the reason why they're not reporting to the police yet. Or there's so many different factors that we have to compete with. But I think it's important that that conversation start at like that brick, that first brick. Mm. You didn't build a wall in a day. You know, right? They say Rome wasn't built in a day. It needed a first brick. So that maybe that person, that family member, that friend. Maybe they helped them in. And if they don't want to be identified to their friend or family, I'm not going to identify them either. Like, I need to make sure that that friend is going to be safe as well because, you know, if I go and identify to the perpetrator, they're going to go straight around to, you know, and maybe then their family is going to get attacked. So I don't want that to happen either. So it's very complex. a victim of DV for eight years and I was a serving police officer so it wasn't until police turned up to my address because the neighbours called because I was being assaulted that a sergeant turned up I was only a constable at the time but a sergeant turned up and he said you know this stops now and that was my first okay he's going to help me but I, I went through it for years and years without trust in anyone or the ability to to go to anyone because I was so fearful because for all those years I was psychologically Mm, traumatised that I'll get you. You know, if you call the police or this happens or this happens, you know. And we had little kids and I was a police officer. Mm. So it's so critical, it's so important for us to... You know, I said before, it's just another domestic. Well, it's not just another domestic. It's another opportunity to save someone's life. And this is And this is why we joined up to do this job. Do you think you were able to leave that situation because of the police? Were the police crucial in that decision? Oh, definitely. I have no doubt in my mind and and I've spoken about this openly. If that sergeant didn't turn up, I would have left eventually, Mm. but I probably would have been a statistic more than likely. We talk about lethality indicators. Well, I was up there with all of them. So, Mm. look, at the end of the day, that's part of my past and I'm a better police officer for it. I'm just one of the lucky ones. Mm. The sergeant who turned up on the day... Mm. This was back in the day where it was like, no, this stops now. And yeah. you listen to what the, what he said. Yeah. So he was the catalyst for me to get safe. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Back onto that message, it's important to show that that domestic violence is not just for one group of people. No. It goes police officer, paramedic, mm. doctor, like, yeah. and, you know, educated engineer, CEO. Like, there is people mm. out there that are suffering. The people in our organisation now are probably it's, suffering. It's no working out, But they've got to work out where they're comfortable to come mm. forward and how they want to go on their journey. And that is a very difficult conversation to have, but we should not avoid it because it's difficult. Like, it, it should mm. just go slow, methodical, make sure that we're trauma-informed and make sure that we have, mm. you know, a purpose. You know, well, why are we doing, why are we talking to you? You know, if they don't have their purpose, maybe we'll give them some purpose. Well, what about this? And mm. and go forward from that. So choices. Think, mm. Yeah. Shall 
Sharon, can you share an example of a really complex case that you've had that's resulted in a, in a good outcome? Oh, we've had a lot. <laughs> 24 years is a long time to be policing and I've, I've dealt with a lot of victim survivors, but one that really stands out for me is we had a young lady come to our police station where I was working and she wanted to speak to a female and I happened to be the only female working, so I took her out and had a discussion with her. I could see that she was a little bit fragile. She was, you know, really reluctant to speak to me initially. She had marks on her body. I could see that she'd been assaulted or something had happened to her. I just went out and had a human conversation with her. What's going on? What can I do for you? And so she started to disclose a few things about her partner who she'd been with for several years. This young lady was well known to us. She had a little bit of drug history and we deal with all walks of life in this job. She was reluctant to talk to us because of that. She'd been to court before. But by just engaging with her and getting her to open up to me, we were able to get enough information to complete a domestic family violence application for an order. During that time, she disclosed to me that he had tied her up for a few days, kept her in the house for a few days, locked her up, injected drugs into her against her will, threatened to kill her, threatened to kill himself if she went to the police. All those things that, you know, are ticking boxes for us. We went through the motions with her and were able to get a pretty lengthy affidavit to support the application, but also for the criminal matters. And we brought in detectives who dealt with that as well. And he was apprehended for those offences and, you know, served some custodial time. And during that time, while he was in jail, we were able to continue to engage with her. I was like a dog with a bone. I just wanted to get her better or fix her like we do. And thankfully, we were able to get her into some services where she's now drug free. She's got her, you know, her little girl and they're safe and she's aware of safety plans and she's aware of red flags and she's aware of all the things that when she was beaten down and not able to engage with police prior to coming to speak to us, she would have continued to be a statistic or if not worse, you know, she was very literally someone who all those lethality indicators were there and you know, there was concerns I felt that if we didn't take action or we didn't help her to get on that path, she would be another DV homicide statistic. And even now, before I left, I would always get phone calls from her or every now and then you'd get a little card in the mail to say, hey, thank you for all you've done for me. I've done my job. This is what I signed up for. So, yeah, that was It's great to see that the um, support extended beyond the custodial time. It wasn't the handcuffs were on, someone goes to jail, yeah. job done. Yeah. That, and it was a few yeah. days before we apprehended him and we had a very succinct plan. We didn't just go in and kick his door down. She took the child to school, yeah. but we had her in a safe house yeah. and then we did the investigation side of things. So that was something that was really... And we've got power and we're able to do that. Yeah. That's something for me, especially as a female mm. officer, that, you know, you think, oh, yeah, well, my job's done here. So as the officer in charge at Mount Morgan, how are you driving change to improve police responses to domestic violence? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of work to be done, that's for sure. You know, I take feedback from anyone and I think it's really important that I get feedback from my victim survivors to see how my staff or how myself, how was our performance? And that might happen a bit later, but we can use that feedback from that victim survivor after the event to project maybe how successful we were and how successful we could be with other people. They might have some learned lessons there from that, that event. And I think also I have an increased focus on domestic and family violence because what I'm finding is the stronger presence we have holding perpetrators to account there's actually less other offences being 
reported in town. So you know, like our, our traffic complaints are down. The um, kids attending at school, like I'm often in at the principal at the school there and we often talk about sharing information for the protection of children, of course. You know, and through our sustained focus for the last term one, you know, they had the highest reported attendance for the region, mm. of, of reportedly, that's what I've been told. So if those kids are in school now, they're getting their education, those perpetrators have been removed. Mm. And, you know, and I also focus on if perpetrators come back to town after they've been removed for a little bit, definitely focusing on bringing the thought up to them, mm. saying, hey, you know, remember what we did and this is exactly what it is. And, and a lot of guys, I've had two or three thank me because mm. they were able to escape too because they, they didn't want to be the perpetrator. Like mm. people, It's not nice being a perpetrator either. So that's how we're driving focus. And we've linked up with CWA. They've been a massive help for us. They just provide it through and through. Another organisation I can plug if I can is dvsafephone.org. Yep. You know, we're a rural town. We don't have doctors in town. If you don't have a phone, mm. you can't call the councillor. Like So that DV Safe Phone gives me phones i'm able to give those phones out to people in need and then they can use that as maybe a secure phone uh, that's got no tracking it's clean you know because sometimes we see perpetrators install devices on people's phones yeah so getting those phones out to get that referral Mm -hmm. the referrals in for those non-police officer responses you know like the the other victim survivors other people with trauma stories other things like that Mm -hmm. and it's just constant you just really can't stop you have to keep your foot on it if you slip up at any moment then you may have you know, a negative response in community. And that's something that I don't want to live with. So um, building the relationship is where we're at. If we can't build our relationship up with the community in, in, in the time of not trauma, like mm-hmm. in, in a pre-trauma stage, mm-hmm. when there is trauma, it's going to be very difficult for them to respect us. Yeah. You know, but always, always baseline, have respect for everyone in our community, you know, like, but we just have to identify our groups, build up our relationships with them. They trust us now and we can go forward. In our town, there is really, like, the police car is the only government car that's driving around. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. child safety and stuff do come up in a town and there is an element from community health from them the hospital but they're limited for their own safety like they just you know they're not they're not armed like they in some of the places they're going to are dangerous yeah so it's difficult to get in when there's that present danger i guess that's where we take up the slack so thank you both so much for coming on and taking the time to have this conversation and i guess answer some questions and, and bust some myths in regards to the questions that we have around police responses to such a complex and dynamic issue that is domestic and family violence uh, the police do such a, a fantastic job with the resources that you have i know from experience working in vulnerable persons unit co-locating in my career that uh, no one was there reading the paper with their feet up and taking it easy um, it's Definitely a difficult not. job you said that from one moment you can be responding to a car crash and telling uh, you know, someone that their loved one has passed to a public nuisance incidents to being you know, in a violent situation and then responding to incidents like these. And it is a really difficult job that is underestimated. So thank you both for uh, not only today, but your service to the community and what you've done oh, over awesome. the years. My and pleasure. thank you both. Thanks for, Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic and family violence, please start the conversation, reach out for support or report to police. Head to our show notes for contact details and service support.